the most challenging parts of teaching is application. Whether it's in the church or teaching in a school setting or coaching or apprenticeship, helping someone apply the knowledge they've obtained is always the challenge because you can have all kinds of inspiration and information, but it's not great of great value unless it can be transferred and applied into real life situations. I've coached hockey and baseball for years, and the purpose of the weekly practice is to teach the players the skills and the strategies they will need to actually use in game situations. And there's nothing more satisfying as a coach or a teacher than to see your students begin to take those principles that you've conveyed to them and begin to apply them. In the church context, I think application is often our weakest link. We have all kinds of Bible knowledge and information, but does, it does not necessarily change who we are or how we approach life or live out our faith. And there can be a disconnect from the songs that we sing and the messages that we hear on Sunday and the way we live the rest of the week. Worship and teaching should reset us. It should reform us and reestablish us in God's truth and love. So we need to ask, does the biblical knowledge I possess bring about the spiritual transformation that God desires? Here at Compass, we have developed what we call our discipleship pathway, where we've defined three action steps, words that we desire for people to take on their journey closer to Jesus. And they are connect, thrive, and commit. We want to see these actions present in all of our ministries. Connect is all about relationships. It's about growing deeper in relationship with God and with each other. It's about having an inviting culture where everyone feels welcomed and knows that they belong and where they are encouraged to, to move closer and deeper in relationship with God. Thrive is all about learning. This is about teaching and study and growing deep in our understanding of God's word, God's will, and God's way. We want people to understand God's truth and be able to discern his voice. Commit is all about application, and this is the one I think we struggle with sometimes. It's the action step where we take what we have learned and we live it out in the context of the relationships we have. We activate our faith, and that's what the second half of the book of Peter, 1 Peter, is all about, living out our faith in practical, everyday situations and circumstances. We've called this series A New Day and a New Way because in the first half of the book, Peter describes the new day that has come because we have trusted in Jesus for salvation. We've been adopted into his family. We have received eternal life and an inheritance of hope. We've been given a new identity as God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We've been given a new purpose to declare his praises, the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And this new day with a new identity and a new purpose is just a hint. It's a foreshadowing of what eternity in heaven will actually look like. And it's all made possible because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. Then we come to the second half of the book, which is the new way. And this is all about application. It's about living out the truth we have received. This answers the question, how then shall we live? It's about looking at real-life examples as we seek to live out our, our faith as people of light in dark days, as people of faith in days of fear, and in people of character in the days of compromise. In the second half of the book, Peter is not introducing new material. He doesn't suddenly switch into a teaching seminar on how government or workplaces or families should be structured. 
This is Peter's illustration of how faith looks like lived out in the arenas of our life. This book follows a very simple pattern that we need to remember. A new day is about truth, principle, and declaration. And a new way is about practice, example, and application. Sometimes Peter's reasoning is hard to follow, and his illustrations can seem out of place until we remember that he was writing to a specific group of people living in a specific setting and seeking to apply a universal truth about God and about faith into their lives. We saw this last week with the illustration of slaves submitting to their masters in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. It certainly is not an endorsement of of slavery. That's not what Peter is teaching here, that slavery is somehow part of God's created design, because it's not. But there are some in church history who have taught that it was. Rather, Peter is instructing them on how they are to live. He's instructing those who in his day had come to faith and yet had found themselves enslaved. He's showing them how they're to conduct themselves as followers of Christ. In a similar way, there is an odd reference to Abraham and Sarah in chapter 3, where Sarah is commended for calling Abraham her Lord and her master when we're only to refer to God with those words. But in the context, we remember that Sarah was deeply honored and respected by Peter's Jewish audience. And so Peter is using her example of humility and submission and trust to inspire others. He's not commanding wives to begin to refer to their husbands as masters. We get into trouble when we take the example and we try to make it the principle. Instead, what we need to learn to do is to take the biblical principle and then begin to apply it into our context today. God, how would you have me live this out? And as we come to the new way in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3, Peter zeroes in on three of the most challenging areas in life to live out our faith. The community, our homes, and in the church. In all three situations, Peter says that we demonstrate our faith through our willingness to submit to others as a sign that we have submitted ourselves to God and that we're trusting him with our lives. And these areas of submission are reinforced in other places in the New Testament. First, it's, to, it's, it's, it's in those areas of civil authority and in our workplaces. We are called to submit Romans chapter 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Second, in our marriages and families, we are called to submit. In Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And the third area is in the church, where we're also called to submit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the, in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give, special, and give special guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. Live peacefully with each other. And what is true about submission in one of these areas is is true in all the other areas as well. In fact, Peter uses the phrase in the same way repeatedly in this passage, linking them together. In the same way that you submit here, you should submit here, and you should submit here. 
In our talking points this week, we asked the question of the three, submitting to governing authorities, submitting to in marriage and in family, and submitting in the church, which do you find the most challenging and the most difficult? I imagine it's probably the one where you feel like you have the least amount of power or voice. Jay tackled the first one last week, and today we're going to look at the next two because they're intertwined, submission in marriage and submission in the church. But let me first begin by giving you a definition. Submission is the willingness to come under the leadership of another, to humbly and respectfully support those who lead, to be compliant to the decisions of those in authority. For the Christian, it's, it's a laying down of our personal rights for the betterment of others. It's, a radical, it's radically countercultural, missional, and reflective of what Jesus did for us. Jesus submitted to God the Father and to the plan of the Father. He submitted to his earthly mother and, and Joseph, his stepfather. He submitted to the Roman authorities, and ultimately he submitted to the cross. And he did all that for us, for our betterment, for our salvation. So what does that kind of Christ-like attitude look like lived out in marriage? What does it look like lived out in the church? What are the principles that we can apply into the situations we find ourselves in week after week as we follow the example of Jesus? I want to encourage you to open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Peter's beginning further application to his readers about how to live out their faith in these two challenging areas. It's not on the golf course or in traffic jams. It's not even on the phone with customer service. It's in marriage and in the church. Let's look at and read together what he says, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, should such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle spirit and of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in the Lord used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give in to fear. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with great respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, there's a lot there to unpack and understand, but don't get distracted by the illustrations and the examples. They are temporary. Rather, dig into the principles and the truths that are eternal. We're going to look and highlight just a few today. And the first is this. A Christ-like home practices cooperation. Teamwork makes for a terrific marriage. Verse 8, which follows, begins with the phrase, be like-minded or have unity of mind. That phrase is only used here in the entire Greek New Testament, and it literally means think as one. And it implies a cooperative mindset between husband and wife who share a common vision. A good sports team must think as one as a whole in order to play effectively. 
And an orchestra must think as one if they're going to achieve a harmonious sound. And any lasting relationship between two people depends on having a cooperative effort. It's about developing an alliance. Husbands and wives are allies, not antagonists. They're on mission together. They are encouraging each other in faith. They're drawing each other closer to Jesus in their words and their actions. And Peter says, this is beautiful. I know one of the things that first attracted me to Amy was her love for Jesus and the way that she worshiped God. And she has said that one of the things that attracted her to me was my desire to serve in the church and preach God's word. There was something deeper going on that drew us to each other. If you want your spouse to move closer to Jesus in faith, don't antagonize or criticize. Set an example for them in your, in your actions and in your attitudes. Make faith attractive by developing that inward beauty of character and grace. Our culture is obsessed with outward appearance, adornment, and beauty. But in the kingdom of God, those things matter very little because they're all temporary. What gets God's full attention is the inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit and the characteristics that are eternal. Married or not, what are the qualities that you can identify in this passage which you would like with God's help to build into your life? This unity and teamwork is developed in the midst of diversity. Peter's not suggesting that men and women are the same or that unity, unity of mind excludes differences of opinion, gifting, or responsibility. No, a Christ-like home recognizes diversity. Peter is very specific here about how wives and husbands should pursue their different roles and responsibilities in, in the setting that they find themselves. He writes to wives, focus on Christ-like behavior. And he goes on to describe what that looks like. And then to husbands, he says, focus on limitless love. And he begins to unpack that for them. And as he does it, Peter is challenging the cultural norms of his day where husbands would tend to dominate their wives and wives would be tempted to resist and resent their husband's leadership. He says, it's different. It's a new day. We're going to live in a new way. So in response to the freedom that they've been given in Christ, Peter is challenging them to live differently, to look out for their mate, to surrender their own interests and desires, and to do what wasn't the cultural norm. Can you imagine how different it would be in that culture to see a husband go all out for his wife, to honor her, love her, listen to her, respect her, protect and care for her, both publicly and privately? Can you imagine how different it would be in that culture to see a wife trust God to take care of her and then willingly honor, respect, and support her husband, both privately and publicly, even if he did not yet believe in Jesus? I think what Peter is describing here is radically beautiful. One of the challenges of, for Christian couples today is to discern how is God calling you to live out these biblical principles in your setting? How do you develop this partnership of cooperation and diversity? What does biblical headship look like in your home? I think those are three questions that are worth having a conversation about and coming to unity at, together as a couple. I think that headship should look a lot like the Trinity, the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, where there are, there are different responsibilities and different personalities, but there is a mutual love, honor, and submission.
When Amy and I first got married, one of the pieces of advice that I received was that as the husband, I should be responsible to oversee the finances of our house. There's two problems with that advice. One, as a couple, we had very different approaches when it came to how to use our money. And second, I'm not very good at managing details. So in those days, it seemed like we were regularly overdrawn on our account. Here's the irony. Amy at the time worked for the bank. She helped people with their finances and investments. She was way more qualified and gifted than me. So eventually we made the change. We established our priorities and we developed a plan, created a general budget, and then Amy took over and oversaw it in the day-to-day. And when we operated with a common vision according to our gifting, it worked way better. Now, there were other areas where I was more gifted and I took leadership, but that cooperative approach works and is godly. And that same type of diversity should happen in the church where people serve according to their giftings. We want people to serve in the way that God has wired them and in areas that they're passionate about. I do have a a cautionary note, though, before we leave this section, because this piece of scripture has been misused. And this involves women living in dangerous or abusive situations. Peter is not addressing women who were being threatened with harm of an abusive spouse. This is not an obligation to submit to sinful acts that degrade and hurt. This passage was never intended to be used to encourage women to willingly submit to abusive treatment. That is a complete misapplication of this scripture. God's heart is for those who are harmed and he wants to free those who are in danger and we need to stand with those who are in those situations and help them walk free. The third principle I want us to see here is that a Christ-like home displays compassion. Verse 8 says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. What makes a marriage strong is compassion. It's the force that holds everything together. Again, in the Greek text, Peter uses several different words to describe this compassion. He talks about sympathy and love for one another and humility and tender-hearted affection. Compassion comes from the same root word as companion. It literally means to suffer alongside of, to accompany with love, to join someone in their weakness and struggle. Rather than demanding that your needs be met, first seek to meet the needs of your spouse. As a spouse, you can show compassion quite easily when your mate is charming, gracious, and loving. However, the real test occurs when your partner is irritable, struggling, or unaffectionate. And yet, that is when we need compassion the most, when we are weak and vulnerable. Compassion picks up the dirty clothes, opens the car door, brings flowers, expresses appreciation, shares unselfishly, and maybe most importantly, listens deeply. And Peter says the only way you can consistently show compassion is through a spirit of humility. Compassion linked with humility calls calls for a gentle spirit and a guarded tongue. Some marriages resemble a war zone where explosive words inflict gaping wounds that leave emotional scars. And no spouse deserves to be attacked like that. A good rule for a Christian home is to display compassion and to, do, and to shun criticism. 
Develop an environment where those in your home feel cherished, understood, respected, and embraced. And we should do the exact same thing in the church. The fourth principle I'd like us to see here happens in verse 9, and it's that a Christ-like home offers forgiveness. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because you were called, because you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. This is about treating your spouse the way Jesus has treated us and learning to do the hard work of forgiveness. Again, in our talking points this week, we ask you to reflect on where you have been insulted or tempted to repay insult with insult or evil with evil. Maybe even just this week, or maybe it was a long time ago. And how might God be calling you to extend or begin to walk towards forgiveness and even blessing for those who have hurt you? Now, you may not be able to get there in one step. You might not be able to move there quickly, and that's okay. Healing is a process. Forgiveness is often a process. But the reason we are called to forgive is so that we get set free from the hurt and the offense that was never ours to carry in the first place. Forgiveness sets us free from the offender and the offense. And, the freedom, and, the, and that freedom is the blessing that God gives to those who offer forgiveness. Now, this is not easy work. Remember, the example here comes from marriages and families in the church, but Peter's writing to those who are in the midst of unbelievable persecution. They had suffered so much, and they were carrying deep wounds that only Jesus could help heal. But this marital principle applies to believers in any situation. And as we read, we see Peter very gently switch and even weave back and forth from talking about marriage to talking about the church. And when he says all of you in verse 8, it literally means not just those in the family or those in marriages, but those who are in the family of God. These are not just principles for the home, they're principles for the church. And then he reinforces that, that corporate aspect, that, that church application by taking us to Psalm 34, which is really a summary of everything he said in the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 about peace in the neighborhood and peace in the workplace and peace in the family and peace in the church. And as we learn to submit and cooperate and show diversity and display compassion and practice forgiveness, we begin to live out these principles. The final one, which is that a Christ-like church surrenders to living God's new way. Imagine if this description was true of our church. If our relationships with each other mirrored what, Paul, what Peter quotes here from Psalm 34. Have you ever experienced a church, a time in the church that you were a part of where there was that real relational harmony? where people willingly chose to live in peace with one another. Those are times of refreshing. And do we ever need them now more than ever? Lord, would you send those times of peace and shalom and refreshment to our soul and to our church? Just think of the impact we would have and the reputation we would gain in our community if we lived out this teaching. Let's read it together from verse 10. 
form, whoever would love life and see good old days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be afraid. I know that this scripture is a direct word for someone today. And you need to hear God say, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, for the Lord your God is with you, and he will defend you. The eyes of the Lord are upon you, and he is attentive to your prayer. But this is also a word for all of us. A challenge for us to use our words to build others up rather than tear them down. To use words um, of of faith and hope and love and encouragement and blessing instead of words of anger and lies and gossip and criticism. Becoming people who create peace, not tension. Being committed in our own life to stop doing things our way and to begin doing things God's way. Because it's a new day and there's a new way to live out our faith, to shine the light, and to follow the example of Jesus in our homes and in the church. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for these eternal truths of what it means to live by faith. I pray, Lord, indeed that you would establish yourself as the Lord of our lives, the Lord of our homes, and the Lord of our church. Be glorified by the way we treat each other respond to each other, use our gifts and our abilities. And I pray, Lord, that we might point others to you. Thank you for all that you have given to us in Christ Jesus, that we are forgiven and chosen and adopted and loved. Make us more and more like Jesus every day as we seek to live in a new day and a new way. For your glory, I pray. Amen.